yourself. I pray these things in your name. Amen. I may have shared with you before, I can't really remember, that on my honeymoon, I had the uh, slight embarrassment of being the only person out of 60 to be swimming in the Riviera Maya with a life jacket on. And it's because, although I'm not afraid of many things, I am afraid of drowning, because uh, I'm a terrible swimmer. And one of my great fears is uh, to be left alone in the water, uh, far from land, and to know there's very little I can do to keep myself from slipping beneath the surface. To help you understand that fear, I'm going to ask you to imagine yourself. You are standing in a boat. Okay, you're standing in a boat. You don't have a life jacket. And you cannot swim either. So you're standing in a boat. No life jacket. You can't swim. You must avoid at all costs going into the water and going under. What are your chief concerns? Staying in the boat. Yeah, staying in the boat. So uh, <laughs> staying in your boat is your chief concern. <clears throat> now, what's your chief concern about? May, may actually carry you out of the boat. Uh, yeah, there are three or four things. Yeah, I forgot. We have a sailor among us. Um, if we were in the south, it would be a bunch of rednecks talking about their John boat uh, from bass fishing. And they would tell me exactly the same things you're telling me, probably. There are a couple of things you need to be afraid of. I'm not demeaning you by that. Mm, mm. Those rednecks are pretty resourceful, actually. Um, there, there are some things outside of your control, outside of you. Uh, waves, your distance from the shore. Uh, perhaps the boat is tethered, perhaps it's not, perhaps it's tethered at one end or the other. Those would be good things to know, but you don't have control over those things. So things outside of your control, uh, your environment, your distance from the land, waves. Secondly, uh, I didn't say you were in the boat alone, or if I did, I didn't mean to. Uh, there may be other people in the boat. Uh, actually, they could be of concern to you. Um, they could rock the boat and cause you to go over. Thirdly, there's your own uh, potential worry and fear. Perhaps you are so nervous and so unsteady on your feet uh, and you're so anxious that you end up capsizing yourself. It's certainly possible. You're standing in a boat trying really hard not to go over and you're so nervous you can't bounce yourself and over you go. Turmoil without, perhaps turmoil within the boat with someone else turmoil within yourself can all send you into the water and to the bottom. Uh, why don't I give you this, this example? Uh, because that's life for some of you. Right now. Actually, it's been life for some of you for a while. Uh, and not just the crew folks. I know you know that all the time. I see you. But I mean, realistically, but metaphorically, every day, uh, some of you are fighting really hard to stay above the water, and some of you feel like you're going under. You need peace. You need peace from the elements around you. You need peace within yourself. You need peace in the boat relationally. But you're surrounded by turmoil. And you're tumultuous inside as well. And this is what I hear from many of you. I'm too busy. I'm too stressed. I'm antsy. I'm worried. I can't sleep at night. This is what I also see. I see that you're weary and exhausted. And some of you sometimes think about Given up. You actually never say I'm giving up, but some of you, I hear it in your voice. Like, why am I even here? Uh, I see you becoming sometimes disagreeable with others. You're just so tired of it. You become snarky. 
and uh, then disagreements arise, and uh, discontentment comes out. Turmoil on the inside, turmoil on the outside. That's the way life is, actually. And because of that, joy is often a fleeting reality. The questions are, does it have to be that way? Should it be that way? Tonight we're going to see an offer of peace. A peace that Paul describes as surpassing all understanding. Peace that surpasses all understanding. Anxious, weary, exhausted folks. Does this sound good to you? It should. If it doesn't, you're not in tune with how weary and exhausted you are. We're going to see tonight that because of the inner and outer turmoil we have that robs us of joy, uh, we must rest in the peace of Christ. We're going to talk about worry on the inside. We're talk about war on the outside. We're going to talk about having peace on the inside and the outside. So worry inside, war outside, peace inside and outside. And first, let's talk about worry on the inside. And uh, we see the reality of this in verse 6. Uh, we'll start in verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord's at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Uh, don't be anxious about anything. Now, we're going to talk about anxiety for a few minutes. And I am not a uh, clinical psychologist. Uh, I do have some background in social work and lots of pastoral experience. I'm going to talk about anxiety from sort of a mishmash approach of biblical wisdom, personal experience, pastoral insight. And if it hits and lands and sticks to you, well, then you're seeing in yourself what I've already seen. And if it doesn't, then you're probably not listening very well. But um, how do we understand anxiety? There's lots of ways to look at it. Again, I'm not giving you a clinical definition. I'm just going to describe it using some of the terms or ideas in this text. Uh, one is fear. Anxiety is driven by fear. It's a manifestation of fear. And it can be about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. He, he has to say this because it's actually possible to be anxious just about anything. Um, sometimes quite silly things. Uh, if you actually like made a list of everything that you were anxious about in your whole life and went back and read it later, you'd be like, oh, so silly. <laughs> and sometimes you don't share with other people because you know if you share with other people what you're, what you're anxious about, they'd be like, you're being ridiculous. Um, but it's a genuine fear about potentially anything. Uh, secondly, it, it's also not just a fear about necessarily anything. I think at the, at the deepest, darkest root of anxiety, it's the fear of abandonment. It's the fear of being left alone. Uh, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The, the word at hand there is close or nearby. And, and I think what we fear, I think our greatest fear is abandonment. To be left all alone. This is actually why we're scared of death. It's actually why we never think about death. Like we never think about death in our culture very much. Except for on Halloween. Then we do it in a very stupid manner. Um, but for the most part, we put death as far away as possible because we're afraid of it. Because we know it is, at least as we think about it, utter separation from everything. Including ourselves in some way. It is the, it is the ultimate abandonment, it seems. And we're afraid of it. Um, I'm not saying we should be, but we are. And uh, we are fearful of being abandoned by God from others. We're fearful of being left alone, of not being known, of being out of sight, of being within sight but forgotten. 
not seen, not loved. So at the heart of anxiety, I believe, is fear. But also from a Christian standpoint, uh, anxiety is often, not always, but often also marked by faithlessness. Now listen, you may take this as me beating you up. I'm not. I'm just saying what the text is going to say. Uh, Paul here is going to call the Philippians not to be anxious, but as we'll see later, to rest, to practice resting in the Lord by prayer. To practice dependence in, in Christ through prayer. Anxiety is not resting in Christ and dependence in prayer. It's not faith. It's actually wrestling. It's wrestling with the circumstances of your life. It's wrestling to gain control over all the things that you can't manage, which frankly is just about everything. Uh, we work really hard in life to pull the pieces together and to hold things together, and we feel pretty good about it. But, but if we step back for just a moment, we, we, we should be able to realize that someone can come along and ruin everything we did like that immediately, quickly. We don't have sovereign control over anything. My, uh, my wife's family in, in the Ukraine bought this house and beautified it. It was beautiful. There's orchards and gardens and everything. And they had to leave it behind when they came to the States. Well, years ago, they found it had been sold for like $40, which was ridiculous. And they're like, what in the world happened? So one of them went back and visited. And what they discovered is that whoever took it from them when they left had just destroyed the place quickly. Orchards were gone, house was dilapidated, uncared for. You can work really hard to hold everything together, but you cannot control it. And turmoil without can come in and destroy it and take it apart. We wrestle to exert control in our world, and there's no promise that we can do so. So the irony here is that uh, anxiety masks itself as a weakness. We think about anxiety as a weakness. The reality is it's actually often a form of pride. It's, it's the prideful belief that we should be able to wrestle control of everything. That we should be able to manage everything. It's the arrogant declaration that we can control everything, should be able to, and that God doesn't care for us and he's not trustworthy. I want to repeat that. Anxiety is a is a manifestation of the belief that we can and should be able to control our circumstances and make things work. The flip side of that is we don't think God can or cares to. This is why it should be surprising to some of you that you're anxious. You are actually surprised that you're anxious, aren't you? Because, frankly, you've kicked butt most of your life. I mean, you really have. Like, you're competent, you're bright, you're athletic, you're skilled, you've excelled. And you get here, maybe for the first time, and... and you're taking your temperature and you're like, my pulse is racing. I'm anxious. I'm antsy. I'm worried. I don't even know about what. Uh, actually, it's your perceived strength. It's your perceived uh, pride that you should be able to manage everything that has set you up for your anxiety. For the, the false idea that you can make life work, that you can control everything. So I'm going to give a little description here, and you can use it as a diagnosis. Again, some of these things will fit you. Some of these things won't. Guys, you're likely to listen to all this and say, not me, not me, not me. Your stuff's coming in a minute. Um, uh, so one, for some, it's often the case that anxiety and depression, sadness, go together. 
Um, those that are depressed are often anxious. Those that are anxious are often depressed. It's possible that you're anxious without being depressed. Uh, if you are persistently anxious, uh, you will eventually be a very sad, depressed person, possibly. But the, the, the reality is you are scratching and clawing to make reality work, and likely, more, more likely than not, you're not going to be able to make it work. You're not, you're not in sovereign control of the world. Things aren't going to always break your way. You're going to have to learn to rest or not. You're going to get worn out. So uh, often you're depressed along with your anxiety. Uh, secondly, like I said, you're fearful, sometimes quite irrationally so. Now, there are gradations of this. Okay, It's a continuum. Some of you have heard say, ah, just sort of antsy and anxious. It's like you drank too much coffee. You just worked up. You don't. Actually, I drink all the coffee all the time. I've never gotten this way. But I've heard that <laughs> if you drink enough, you get like really anxious and jittery. Um, and some of you just sort of walk stressed out. You've got so much adrenaline pumping through you because you're constantly performing at like peak performance. And you, and you realize, like, oh, I feel pretty good about myself. I'm crushing life. At the same time, you're like, man, but I'm, I don't feel right. And I don't know why. Uh, you're worried, you're anxious, you're antsy. It's some unnamed thing that's bothering you. Uh, some of you have a preoccupation, perhaps rational, with things that are completely beyond your control. An irrational fear of things. Uh, perhaps something in your past. Perhaps some uh, thing that happened to someone else. Uh, my wife experienced this years ago when people in her family were murdered. And that actually is not altogether irrational for you to say it happened to them, it can happen to me but it can get deep into your psyche, into your heart, and take over and lead you into anxiety and depression. Uh, some of you are, um, you know exactly what you're anxious about, and it changes every four or five days. Um, you have a preoccupation with things, scenarios, or problems, uh, and you tend to overestimate the challenge, actually. I hear this all the time. Uh, this is going to be the worst exam ever. I'm going to fail this. And what you're saying, you're not saying, what you're saying is, this is the worst exam ever. This is the exam from hell. This is like MCAT times three, and I'm going to fail it, and my life's over. There's just like no recovery from this. Now, you're not saying that, but the way you're acting and saying that, and the way you're living your life around that exam also says that. Uh, while overestimating the threat or the scenario, you're also underestimating, usually, your ability to cope with it. Again, you can't control all of reality, but you're no dummy. Uh, I've talked to some of you, you're, you're convinced you're going to fail a test, fail this class. The way you're acting with your anxiety tells me you're convinced you're doomed. Have you ever failed a test before? No, I've actually never gotten worse than a C. Okay. Uh, let's think about this reasonably. Um, if you're just a faithful student and you do your work, you're probably going to get no worse than a C. Uh, even if you got a D. You're going to pass. What's the worst that could happen? The worst that could happen would be, uh, I got a C in the class? That's right. Could you take the class again? Yeah. Would they kick you out of school? No. All right. Just take a deep breath. It's okay. We tend to overestimate the scenario and underestimate our ability to cope. Um, third, some of you are haunted. You have, you have a case of the shoulds. You have... A perpetual feeling of being obligated to perform perfectly in everything. Everything you do, you should be perfect at. And some of you have it extra bad because you not only should excel in everything you do, you feel like you should do everything. <laughs> Seriously. Everything I do, I should do perfectly. And, by the way, I should really try and do everything. You should do everything perfectly. 
No wonder you're anxious. Um, some of you can't sleep because of this. You're literally too ramped up. You cannot calm down. You need medication just to sleep. Or perhaps you're self-medicating to sleep. Some of you won't sleep. Like, you know you need to, but you won't. And, and this is what sin does to us. You're actually aware as a, as a sign of pride and honor. Like, yeah, I slept like four hours last night. It's terrible. Aren't I awesome? Because um, I'm killing life, and it's killing me. It's great. Um, you just feel like you have too much to do, and you're too busy, and you refuse to acknowledge that you are a creature. You don't know how to rest. And so you think you're a machine, so you do what machines do. They don't rest. They crash. That's what you do. You work and work and work until you crash. You're not supposed to do this. It's not the way you're supposed to live. And fourth and lastly, there's, a, there's more stuff I could talk about, but again, I'm not an expert in anxiety. Um, there's a social component. Uh, it's often the case, and there are always exceptions, but it's often the case that very anxious people uh, tend to disregard the need of others. And it plays out like this. Uh, you are so preoccupied and, and frankly urgent in your frantic nature to, to control everything and to perform well in everything and to do everything that you can't make time for others. Actually, you may actually want to, but you can't. You know it requires you to stop and linger and invest in others. But frankly, the more you think about it, you, you, you just don't have time. Uh, some of you are anxious and uh, uh, about this and you actually want to make time for others, but you're actually also anxious about what other people think about you. You're afraid of what they think about you. You're afraid of whether you fit in. You're, you're paranoid. You think people are judging you. There's a great poem about this by a guy uh, named Philip LePate. He wrote in Anna Mott's beautiful book, Bird by Bird. Um, he's saying something that we all sort of think is true, but we never admit. We're not really this paranoid, although some of us are. Um, but it, the poem reads like this. I'm not going to read it like a poem. I'm just going to read it. We who are your closest friends feel the time has come to tell you that every Thursday we have been meeting as a group to devise ways to keep you in perpetual uncertainty, frustration, discontent, and torture by neither loving you as much as you want nor cutting you adrift. Your analyst is in on it and your boyfriend and your ex-husband. We've pledged to disappoint you as long as you need us. In announcing our association, we realize we've placed in your hands a possible antidote against uncertainty, indeed against ourselves. But since our Thursday nights have brought us to a community of purpose, rare in itself, with you as a natural center, we feel hopeful you will continue to make unreasonable demands for affection. If not as a consequence of your disastrous personality, then for the good of the collective. Now, we don't actually think people are conspiring against us in this way. But some of us, deep down, we really are so anxious and fearful about what other people think about us that we're paralyzed. We certainly don't want them to really see what we think and what we're about and what we fear. And in its worst form, anxiety isolates us. Anxiety's greatest fear is being alone, and anxiety in the end will push us to being alone. Because in trying to control everything, and trying to look like we have it together, we will actually be hiding from others and working too hard to invest in others, and we'll end up de facto isolating ourselves from others. We'll tell people that we're fine, 
when we're really not. Or, as we're going to see in a second, uh, because we're so anxious, it's also possible, we won't tell them we're fine. We'll just come across as prickly, arrogant, cranky busybodies. And that's part of the deal with anxiety. This will go quickly here. Um, anxiety not only worries within, but it produces war on the outside. We end up uh, fighting and disagreeing with others. We have in uh, verses 2 and 3 a disagreement. You probably noticed this. It's very interesting. Uh, these two people are, from all Paul can tells us, uh, tells us uh, two women who are trusted confidants in the work, leaders in the community, who, who he believes sincerely are destined for glory. Their names are in the book of life. And they're disagreeing. And the situation's so bad. This is not roommate drama. The situation's so bad that he includes this in a book that will be read in front of the church. Like, they, Epaphroditus was going to bring this, come to church, read it, and get here, and it comes out of the blue. By the way, I entreat all of you to tell these two women to fix it. Actually, it says, I entreat all of you to help them fix it. Disagreement. Now, why is it here in the middle of our text? Well, there's a couple different reasons. Some of you know the reality that relational discord. I've talked to some of you lately who've had roommate issues or family issues. It, it tends toward anxiety. It can cause anxiety. The fact that you're at war with people close to you causes stress. It's also the case that stress and anxiety often produces discord. And the way this works is you become a disagreeable person and you make disagreements happen. You're often in disagreements because you're disagreeable by nature. Uh, Paul says in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Some of you, if you had your Bibles here, would say gentleness. He's saying if you're marked by the peace of Christ, a reasonable nature and a gentle nature should, 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 be, should be natural to you. It should come out, and you should let it come out. Well, what comes out if you're an anxious, fretful uh, person is not gentleness. It's your disagreeable nature. It's your irritation. Uh, because you're, you're working not with a surplus of joy, you're working with a deficit. I actually can't care for you or take care of you, and your concerns aren't really all that important to me because I have my own problems and things to worry about. Uh, we're emotionally and mentally thin in some ways when we're very anxious. We're also distracted. We're just preoccupied with our own things. We have the tyranny of the urgent. I've got this to do, then that to do. I'm sorry. I know it's really important, and I'm sorry i got to go. Or we're discontent. We think we deserve better. We're working really hard to make reality work. We're performing really well. We're doing everything we can perfectly and trying to add things on the, on the back end. And it's still falling apart. And we're discontent. We think we deserve better. And we get irritable and bitter. And the reality is lots of us do this. And we walk through all our lives every day thinking, I'm busy. And I'm tied up. But, but people should see it and know it and just give me room. If they see how busy I am, how stressed I am, uh, they'll know that my being a jerk is justifiable. And what we're actually saying when we're, when we're saying that or thinking that is uh, they should know that I'm more important than they are. Or what I have going on right now is more important than what they have going on, which is the same thing. I'm more important than they are. So the question is, what's coming out of you? Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. It comes out of you. What's coming out of you? <laughs> Gentleness? Reasonableness? Or peace and joy? Or anxiety? Emotional immaturity? Worry? Man, the way we often show anxiety is not, okay, I'm not doing 
gender. Okay, I am doing gender stereotypes. Um, I am doing gender stereotypes. So, sorry. Um, girls, you're more prone to go home and cry. Uh, I've been doing this for four years. I've seen you cry in this room over anxiety and worry. I've seen it just slowly leak out of you. God made you or you show it. Um, guys, and there are exceptions. There are exceptions. Don't beat me up later. Um, guys, I've never seen you do this. What I see you do is become very irritable and cranky. And you don't even know you're stressed. All of a sudden, though, you just got these knots back here. You're like, Where? what is wrong with me right there? What's that? I need to go get it out. You go to the gym and try to get it out. But then you, um, you're actually irritable. And it's actually because you're emotionally immature, guys. I, I'm just being honest. Like, it's true. It, it's okay. You're going to get better as you get older. I promise. I'm not beating you up by saying this. Literally, you are emotionally immature, and it'll get better as you get older. Um, what you do at this point when you're stressed is you tend to beat people up around you. You're irritable. You're short. You're curt. Perhaps you're just absent. You dismiss others. What are we filled with? Guys or girls, we're filled with anxiety, with peace. Most of us are able to rejoice when circumstances line up perfectly. We're in the boat, we're standing, there's no wind, no one rocking the boat. <sighs> Deep breath, peace within. Nailed it! Joy! <laughs> and then here comes the wind, they're rocking the boat, the anxiety is back on, the joy is over. And that's the way it is. We have joy for like a minute and it's gone. It's out the window. Because peace lasts that long when you trust in your circumstances. When you're trying to control everything. God here promises through Paul peace inside and outside that rests not on our circumstances but on a God who does not change. And, and the problem here is uh, we, we, he, he describes this as a peace that surpasses all understanding in verse 7. Which means we can't fully understand it, so we're not going to try to fully understand it. The question is, frankly, quite practically, how do I make that awesome, incomprehensible peace part of my life, part of reality in me? How do I get that outside thing in here? And we're going to talk about that, peace inside and out. There's some outside realities, things that are outside of us that need to come into us and be a part of our lives regularly if we're going to experience this kind of peace. Let's talk about the outside stuff first. Realities that are outside of us that we need to get inside of us. And one is God's promises. In verse 1, he tells them, Brothers, whom I long love for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord. Now I've been using stand firm. This image of standing in the boat is sort of my metaphor for standing firm. What you need to know is you can stand firm in the boat because of the promises of God. Um, and there's a couple of things here that, that help. Um, first of all, I said one of the things you probably need to be concerned about if you're standing in the boat is the fact the boat may not be tethered and it may drift off in the middle of nowhere. Well, what does it do to stand in the boat if you drift in the middle of the ocean and you're just there forever? Eventually you're going to fall. What we need to know is that we have promises in this book that tells us we're well tethered to the Father. We're going nowhere. We can stand firm in the boat because the boat is not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. Chapter 1, verse 6. We have a promise that the God who began a good work in us will finish it. In other words, we're not just tethered on one end of the boat. We're tethered on both ends. If you tether just one end of the boat, well, the boat's not going to go anywhere, but it may rock and move all over the place. Both ends are tethered. It's much easier to stand firm. And we have the promise in Scripture that we have a God that justifies us, that makes us, that gets us, that brings us near, that makes us right. And the same God promises, I'm going to make you right. 
From the beginning of the moment when I draw you till the very end when I perfect you, you are mine and you're going nowhere. You cannot drift away from me because I am here and you're going nowhere. We are the tether to him. We have that promise. We also have the promise of his presence. God's promise is in God's presence. Verse 5, the Lord is at hand. He is near. He's close. And he cares. And he's not going anywhere. And we're not alone. We're not alone. It's not all up to us to control everything. We have a God who's in control, who is close, who is near, and who wants to know us. Now, these are the realities outside of us that we need to get on the inside. How do we do that? Our text sort of tells us. We've got to take these things to the inside. And we do that by relying on Him. Verses 6 and 7. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We have to practice reliance on God the Father. And how do we do that? Well, what he says here is you've got to pray. Prayer here is sort of shorthand for all kinds of ways in which we practice dependence. But we'll just let prayer be the thing. Uh, Paul Miller in his book of Praying Life says, If you're not praying, you're quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. I mean, think about that. Especially Christians in the room, non-Christians, I suspect you're not praying. Or if you do every now and then, you don't know why you're praying. You just have an innate urge to do so. Uh, Christians that aren't praying regularly, you hear what he said? I mean, I'm talking to all of you and myself when I say that, because we don't pray like we should. Uh, We're actually trusting time, resources, and our own talents to get by in life. Well, some of you will say, I don't know how to pray. I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. I'm going to give you a few helps. One, it's really important that you know the God you're praying to. You're not going to pray if you don't know the God you're praying to. You certainly will not trust Him to go to Him in honest prayer unless you know Him well. You actually need to do a diligent study to figure out what God's like. Read Scripture. Keep coming to this. Find books. Ask me about it. Get to know the God of Scripture who's trustworthy. Second, your posture in prayer is more important than your performance. And by posture, I don't mean whether you're standing or sitting or walking. I couldn't care less. I mean your spiritual posture. Is it, God, please help me a little bit? I've got this on my own, but if you can just give me like a little kick, that'd be great. Or is it one of desperate neediness, of uh, being honest about everything, of bringing everything, as it says here, to him? Is it a posture of <laughs> excuse me, honest, real dependence? Third, like this text says four different ways, ask. Ask. It says pray, supplicate. Request. Oh, it uses Thanksgiving as well. So it says ask three times and tells you to give thanks to the other. Ask. Your asking is actually an indication of the right posture, that you're dependent. And thank. This is a relationship. You actually should have some gratitude. You actually didn't achieve all the awesome things in your life. Frankly, most of them were given to you. You didn't choose to be born here, to your family, your, even your genetics, which make you at least somewhat as smart as you currently are, as good looking as you currently are. You didn't do much to get those in you. Um, Frankly, you have all kinds of things to be grateful for, and you didn't contribute jack squat to most of them. Sorry. It's just true. (laughs) You're awesome, and I love you, though. But you really should be grateful and thankful. You're reaping the benefits of all kinds of things that you did not earn. uh, Fifthly, sixthly, wherever we are on the list. Study prayer. You can learn about it. There are great resources. I'll mention some of them later. 
Lastly, pray with others. And don't just pray with others because it's something you're supposed to do, although that's a good reason to do it. But this is a way to learn about prayer, and it's also a way to, be, to practice this, to be real. And I would encourage you, as a manifestation of this, sort of pressing a little further, um, I love when you share your prayer requests. Um, be more real. Be more honest about your heart. Like, don't just have me ask us to pray for your test. Uh, ask us to pray for your anxious heart. Like, you know, we see it. We know it's there. I see it. And frankly, you know what? I care a lot more about you than I care about your test. I really do. I care more about your anxious heart than I care about your performance. I care about your performance, too. But one of these things is more important. So be honest. So we practice reliance. And secondly, lastly, we're almost done. We have to remember. Verses 8 and 9, Paul's telling us how to think. We're supposed to pray. We're supposed to think. And frankly, uh, what we tend to think about are things surrounding us and things we're preoccupied with, things we obsess about. Uh, Paul is actually much broader. He's like, uh, if it's beautiful, if it's pure, if it's lovely, whatever, 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 whatever. That's a lot of freedom there. To think about whatever, so long as it's pure and beautiful and lovely. Um, he's saying, I want you to think on these things, to remember these things. And then he, to make it clear, though, if you, if you really can't think about what's beautiful and lovely and pure and clear, uh, remember the things that you've learned from me and received and heard and seen in me. What things are those, Paul? Well, everything about Jesus I've been telling you. If you cannot get out of the stubborn rut in your mind where you just think about you and the things you're constantly preoccupied, and the things that cause you anxiety, think on these things. Those things are dragging you down into the hole. These things will lift you, and give you peace, and give you joy, as you're reminded of the God that loves you and cares for you. Think on Christ. Well, um... We've seen, we've talked about the worry that's inside of us because of anxious fear. We talked about how we war with others because of it um, and how you can have peace inside because of the things that are true on the outside about God. Let me sum this thing up with a story. Um, you know, some of you, most of you, that I have three children. And what I've learned about humanity through my children is that um, we actually grow more realistic in our fear as we get older. Our fears grow in some ways, but we also grow more realistic in our fears as we grow older, partly because we learn more about reality. So by the time, like, I'm 37 now, I've got a pretty good handle on the way reality works. I'm pretty sure about the things I, know I should be afraid about and things I shouldn't be afraid of. So yeah, I'm pretty sure half my life's over. I should be concerned about things 37-year-old men should be concerned about. Uh, when you're two and four, you're just beginning to develop an imagination and learn about the world. My son's not yet afraid of things he should be afraid of. Uh, like cars, um, <laughs> jumping off of things, putting things in his mouth that don't belong there, sticking things in his ears or nose that don't belong there, um, all those things. Um, my two-year-old knows even less. What begins to happen at a certain age, though, is it begins to develop an imagination. And frankly, this is where anxiety comes in. We make monsters out of nothing sometimes. That's what my children do at night. Put them to bed. My four-year-old does this. He, he sees things that aren't there. I mean, they're there. The, the stuffed animals in the corner become giant monsters. Your life is like that. You're making giant monsters out of everything, often. Uh, that, that exam 
that you're well equipped for, you're making a monster out of it, and you're living in fear of it. Um, and what happens? Well, perhaps he tries to deal with it for a while until he finally calls to me, and then I, if I'm a good dad, I go. I'll do a thorough monster examination, extermination, um, and I'll come over and, and draw close and tell him, look, there's no monsters. You have very little reason to be afraid. There's nothing to be worried about, and I am right there if you need me. I'm, I'm close. I'm nearby if you need me. Now, that typically works about half the time because what happens is they go from being afraid of what they think they see, which is monsters, to uh, being afraid of what they don't see. What they don't see is me. They've seen my presence and my nearness and my closeness, but now my absence is what makes them afraid. They can't see me. And that's the case with some of you, too. Uh, it's your distance or your felt distance from God that has you anxious. You actually need to be reminded how close he is to you. And so often I'll start crying again. And if I'm a good dad, I'll stop cursing under my breath and I'll get up and go to them <laughs> and, and say, what? No, I'll say, what's wrong? And, um, what? and they'll say something like, Daddy, we miss you. We want you. Now, sometimes I can tell them, I'm right there. It's okay. Go to sleep. We'll have a huge breakfast in the morning. We'll have fun. It'll be a great day. I always try it. Um, <laughs> sometimes it works. Sometimes nothing works but one thing. And that's to take my child out of the bed and to show them how close they are to me. I am always close, and I am always, to some extent, in control, and I always love them, but sometimes they cannot believe it until they're right here. Until I pull them into bed with me, and they sleep in the crook of my arm. And what I'm telling you is, God is that close to you, and that loving to you if you're a Christian. He's made promises, you are His, He's got you double tethered, the beginning and the end, He knows you, He's near he hears your cries. He comes to you. He cares better than I do. And I love my children. But sometimes it's hard for you to believe unless you draw near. And even though sometimes I don't want to get out of bed, I never, ever, ever regret having my child right here. It's the delight of a father. The father delights to have you near. He delights to have you near. Draw near through prayer. Think on him often. Know he cares for you. Believe the promises in his presence. Let's pray together.